0: People are celebrating the end of the Civil War. There are huge crowds gathered outside the White House, and Lincoln actually spoke from the White House window out to the crowd, and John Wilkes Booth was there, and he allegedly made a threat against Lincoln that night. He said, that does it. I'll run him through for this. That'll be the last speech that man ever gives.
1: (laughs) Welcome to the Trip Hacks DC podcast. Discover the best tips, tricks, and travel hacks for your visit to the nation's capital. And now, here's Rob and this episode's special guest. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to the Trip Hacks DC podcast. If you want to check out other podcast episodes or see the show notes from this episode, you can do that over at triphacksdc.com slash podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by Trip Hacks DC Tours. DC tours run year-round, so no matter what time of year you're planning your trip, we can help you show you around. You can learn more over at TripHacksDC.com slash tours. Today I am joined by Rebecca Grawl, a historian, big fan of Abraham Lincoln, and former guest of the podcast from our holiday tips episode.
0: Hi, Rob. Hi, everybody listening. I'm Becca. I'm a DC tour guide. I've been a guide for about eight years now. Uh You can usually see me out with DC by foot and with a tour of her own, which does women's history focused tours. I am a huge Lincoln enthusiast and I love talking about Lincoln and presidents in general. So I'm very excited to be here.
1: And today's episode is all about Abraham Lincoln because most people who are visiting Washington DC know about the Lincoln Memorial, but we have a lot of Abraham Lincoln historic sites. So much that if you were planning a short weekend trip, you could do almost exclusively Lincoln related things and keep yourself busy the whole time. So let's go ahead and jump into it because we've got a lot to cover. And like I said, the first one that everybody knows is the Lincoln Memorial.
0: Yes, I am always a little surprised when I take guests to the Lincoln Memorial because it's always busy. It doesn't matter what time of day, what time of year, what the weather is. And people are sort of surprised. But it's also the reason that most people come to D.C. or it's usually at the top of their list. So to me, you can't come to D.C. and skip the Lincoln Memorial. You have to do it. But no, it is our most visited historic site. It's one of the most visited national park sites in the country. So it's going to be busy.
1: It is almost 100 years old we're coming up on the centennial. I hope they have something good, at least cake.
0: It was dedicated in 1922, so we're coming up on the centennial in 2022. And the National Park Service is planning to do a pretty sizable restoration. If you have been around D.C. this year, you've maybe noticed some of the marble cleaning they're doing. The plan is to completely revamp underneath the memorial, have new visitor space. Now, whether or not that will be done in time for the 100-year mark, we will see.
1: Yeah, the underneath of the Lincoln Memorial is a really fascinating topic to me because most people don't realize that you used to be allowed to go underneath. I believe if you were escorted by a park ranger, you could go with them. They'd open the door and you could check out the underbelly of the Lincoln Memorial
0: the underside, that under area is really fascinating, too, because there's actually graffiti from many of the workers who helped to build the Lincoln Memorial. So people left their initials and little drawings and notes from a 100 years ago, many of them were Italian immigrants coming to do carving. So there's little notes in Italian. So I really do hope that that will reopen and that we might get a little bit more information about Lincoln and his life being presented at the memorial. That's the only downside to me is you don't get a lot about Lincoln's life. You sort of get the grandeur of the memorial. But if you want more context, you really have to at one of these other sites.
1: Yeah, I agree with you there. The reason why you can't go underneath anymore is because if I understand correctly, there's asbestos and (laughs) in 2019, that's not acceptable. So they have to do a major job to get rid of that before they can let people safely back underneath the memorial. And the Lincoln Memorial, the reason why it's up a bunch of stairs is because it's The Parthenon, which is in Athens, Greece, but there's no big hill at the site of the Lincoln Memorial. So they use the stairs to create that hill. One interesting fact that I learned about years ago was that we almost didn't have a Parthenon for Lincoln. We almost had an Egyptian pyramid.
0: Yes, they had a number of designs that were submitted. And the most popular by far, particularly with members of Congress, was this one that looked like a giant pyramid, which today I think would seem a little out of place, a little unusual. But at the time, early 1900s made a lot of sense. The Washington Monument, which is just about a mile down from Lincoln Memorial, is an obelisk inspired by the ancient Egyptians. So at the time, it seemed like a nice companion. Today, though, we have so many buildings that are inspired by that Greek and Roman style architecture. Lincoln Memorial is a good fit as it is today.
1: It seems to me like we don't really like change. So at the time, (laughs) 1910s, we had one monument, the Washington Monument, and it is an Egyptian obelisk. So the logical thing is – We're sticking with Egyptian. We're going to make a pyramid for Lincoln. It all makes perfect sense. Looking back on it, it sounds ridiculous. You can Google Lincoln Memorial Pyramid. I'll put a link to some articles in the show notes. And I think you might agree that it looks awfully ridiculous.
0: I think it would look very out of place today.
1: And so let's move on from the Lincoln Memorial to another well-known Lincoln historic site. It's about a mile and a half miles down the road, and it is Ford's Theater.
0: Ford's Theater, I would say, is second, like you said, to the memorial. Ford's Theater is the site of Lincoln's assassination, April 14th, 1865. Lincoln is assassinated by an actor and Southern sympathizer, John Wilkes Booth. Lincoln doesn't die at the theater. Uh, People sometimes are not always sure about that. Lincoln is unconscious from 10.15 p.m. until the next morning, 7.22 a.m. But he's actually carried across the street to the Peterson Boarding House, which is part of the Ford's Theater historic site today. So when we talk about Ford's Theater, we're actually talking about two sites right across the street from each other that you can visit on one ticket.
1: So Ford's Theater is obviously, a theater. Lincoln went there to see a play. And Peterson House, you called it a boarding house. So what would that have been in the 1800s? What was a boarding house back then?
0: It would have been like a hotel or an apartment building. We didn't really have apartment living in the 19th century quite yet at this point. So it was not uncommon to rent a room out of someone's house, especially during the Civil War. It was a tough time in Washington, D.C. There was a lot of transient population with the war. And so it was very common for people to open up rooms in their house and rent them out to people.
1: So, John, Wilkes Booth was Lincoln's assassin, and he was an actor, like you said. So nobody found it out of place that he was in Ford's theater. Actors both performed, and they enjoyed going to performances. But I think the big question that people have, especially nowadays with Secret Service and big fences around the White House and, you know, armored limousines and everything is, where was Lincoln's protection? Where was Secret Service?
0: We have to remember that in 1865, the Secret Service didn't exist in the role that it exists today, that there wasn't 24-hour protection of the president. There was an idea that in a democracy where you have elections and where your public elected officials are held accountable through a series of checks and balances, that you wouldn't have a need for political assassination. That is maybe an idealized idea, but that was really the thought. That said, Lincoln wasn't completely unaware of the fact that he was a wartime president, that these were very difficult times and divided times in our nation during the Civil War, he did use bodyguards. He did have a man at the theater that night, John Parker, a policeman and bodyguard. Parker was not there. Um, He would later be found next door at a saloon. But it wasn't really Parker's job to stand guard per se. So we just have to remember that ideas about presidential protection were very different in the era.
1: And it's not just that his bodyguard wasn't on his person, but it's that after Booth Shot the president, he jumped down from the president's booth and then, with an injury, escaped out of the back door, got onto his horse, and rode out of the city, which to me is nuts because there was no police outside either, so that they could say, hey, stop that man. You know, he just got on his horse and rode away.
0: John Wilkes Booth was certainly very clever about the timing of this, knowing that he'd be able to get into this theater. Nothing would seem amiss. Booth had previously sort of already thought about kidnapping the president, he'd already had this idea of an attack on the president. So he had the benefit of knowing that he'd be able to get out and where he could go and who he could trust. He's on the run for 12 days before being captured.
1: And Booth, you know, he had been planning this for a while. There's a photo of Lincoln's second inauguration. And in the photo, you can actually see John Wilkes Booth. He was in attendance. So he was in D.C. He was an actor. He was here and he was just waiting for the opportunity, it seems.
0: He was even outside the White House just uh, three nights before Lincoln's assassination on April 11th. People are celebrating the end of the Civil War. There are huge crowds gathered outside the White House. And Lincoln actually spoke from the White House window out to the crowd. And John Wilkes Booth was there he allegedly made a threat against Lincoln that night. He said, that does it. I'll run him through for this. That'll be the last speech that man ever gives. And it was Lincoln's last public speech.
1: Wow. So when you visit Ford's Theater today, it still is a theater. It's a historic site. If you go there during the daytime, they have the National Park Service Rangers there. They will show you the inside of the theater. You can see the historic stuff. And then what happens if you go in the evening?
0: If you go in the evening through most of the year, except for the summer, it's actually a working theater. So I love that. Lincoln loved the theater. He went to the theater a lot. He was criticized for going so much during the Civil War, but he loved theater. So bringing theater back to Ford's I think is a really nice way to honor Lincoln's legacy because he loved the art. So they usually do four productions a year. They always do a musical, which is always fun. They do the Christmas Carol. That's one of the longest running holiday events in DC, which I know we talked about in our holiday podcast. And then they usually do a couple of plays. It's usually something from the era of Lincoln, so from the Civil War era, and then usually an American classic. So if you want to get kind of the best of both worlds, you can get a ticket to one of their evening performances, which actually includes time to go down to the museum Before the show, see the historic stuff like the gun that Booth used and the coat that Lincoln was wearing, all of that. And then you can go up and see a show.
1: And that's a great point as well because if you do go to see a show, you can go early, see the historic stuff. If you don't plan to do the theater, the show, you still should get a ticket. You can get tickets on the Ford's Theater website. Even though it is technically free, they do charge a few bucks for a processing fee. But it is worth it to make sure that you get the time that you want that you can go or you can go on a tour. You lead a tour in and around Ford's Theater, and so when they go on tour with you, what, what do they get to see?
0: So yes, I do want to mention that with Ford's Theater, you can actually walk up day of and get free tickets, no fee. So if you're visiting during a slower time of year or you are just in the neighborhood, it's always worth it to walk up. But if you're coming during the busy tourist seasons, if you're very short on time, it's well worth the $3 booking fee to reserve the tickets in advance. But if you want to go more in depth, I lead a Lincoln Assassination walking tour with DC by Foot. We run this year round. It's our most popular tour outside of the National Mall. We start outside the White House and then we basically trace the last 24 hours of Lincoln's life. We look at the conspiracy, what happens to all those involved, and we end right outside of the house where Lincoln died. It's a really beautiful two-hour tour. I always get a little emotional every time I tell the tale, but it's well worth it if you're interested in learning more about the assassination specifically.
1: Yeah, I'd love to talk all about that now, but two hours is a little more time than we have for the (laughs) podcast. So we will have to move on to the next Lincoln Historic Site, which is called Lincoln's Cottage. It's, I think, to me, a rather obscure Lincoln Historic Site. Most folks who visit Washington, D.C., it's not even on their radar at all. But it is called Lincoln's Cottage because this is where he went in the summer. It was what he considered his summer home.
0: We have to remember that in the 1860s, there's no air conditioning. D.C. is a very hot, humid place, and it would have been absolutely sweltering in the summers, especially during the Civil War. The city uh, is so crowded with people coming and going with the war. We were talking a little bit about this before recording, but that the smell, there was a canal running right through the heart of D.C. that absolutely would have just been awful in the middle of the summer. So for Lincoln to get away, to get away from the crowds, get away from the heat, get away from the stench, he would have made his way up to the cottage. The cottage is at the third highest point in Washington, D.C. We're a pretty low-laying city, but we do have some hilly areas. He would have been able to get fresh air, a cool breeze. And now, to those who live in the city, it's a very populated area. But at that time, it would have been the outskirts of town, and he could have gotten some solitude. It was the place he went to think, to reflect, and to write, most importantly, to work on writing the Emancipation Proclamation.
1: Yeah. When we think of the city today, we think of the District of Columbia. And if you're in the District of Columbia, you're sort of in the city. But back then, this spot would have been – I wouldn't even call it the suburbs. I might call it the country because (laughs) there were so few other things up there or homes up there. And so Lincoln would go up there in the summer. And I personally find it unfathomable that anyone would spend a summer in Washington, (laughs) D.C. without air conditioning. But I also appreciate that – you know. In the 1800s, you're not flying back home every weekend, and so it's a little bit trickier to travel. But not just the canal, but the horses that were here in the Pennsylvania Avenue episode of the podcast. We talked about the horses that would go up and down (laughs) Pennsylvania Avenue, and that manure is, you know, right there. It's – uh yeah, it's there. So I can see why why Lincoln would want to go up there. This was also the summer home for a few other presidents.
0: Yes. So presidents uh, Hayes and Arthur both spent time there and actually before Lincoln, the man who preceded him in the office, James Buchanan, was the first president to go up there to again just to escape that summer heat. It's also a place that Lincoln did spend some time with his family. He did bring his sons with him. He did bring his wife with him. So it gives a nice insight into Lincoln outside of just the office of the president but the husband and the father. Lincoln, by all accounts, is a very loving father to his four sons. So I just think you get to learn a little bit more about him as a person. It's also a great way for visitors to maybe see a side of the city that isn't just kind of the downtown federal core.
1: I agree. This is a part of town that I don't know, in the 80s or 90s, you might hear, oh, don't go up there. It's not a good part of town. But nowadays, it's very developed, very safe. And so you can head up there, see Lincoln's Cottage. When people Google Lincoln's Cottage, they're going to find something called the old soldier's home. So what is this old soldier's home? Who is the old soldier?
0: The old soldier's home, if I am correct, was a veteran's home, essentially a place for those who had served to find lodging, to find a place to live. So um, it may be confusing to people, but it was Lincoln's Cottage. It had been turned into a soldier's home after the Civil War.
1: Right. So when you're Googling it, don't worry if you find Old Soldiers Home, it is the same thing. You do have to have tickets to go. Tickets are required.
0: It is not a free site, but it is well worth the price of admission. They offer a number of discounts. So if you're traveling with children, military personnel, I would definitely, definitely recommend being sure to look for those discounts. And they have a signature tour, which I think is worth the extra money.
1: Yeah, I think the reason why this doesn't make a lot of those 100 free things to do in DC list is because it's not free, but it's cheap. And so it's a great opportunity to do something that not a lot of other people do. And because it's not free, the bonus side of that is that it's not as crowded as some of the free sites are. I want to talk about Lincoln Park, which not to be confused with Lincoln Park in Chicago (laughs) or any other Lincoln Park that exists in the country. This is to be
0: Lincoln Parks everywhere, right?
1: (laughs) I imagine there are surely many parks named for our great honest, Dave. And this is a park that's in the Capitol Hill neighborhood. It is technically a National Park Service unit, but it feels very much like a neighborhood park.
0: It is maybe a 10-minute walk from the Capitol. But if you are just visiting Washington, D.C. as a tourist and you head towards Lincoln Park, you'll be 10 minutes from the Capitol, but you really are in a neighborhood. And this park is treated like a neighborhood park. You're going to see people walking their dogs. You're going to see people playing with their kids. You're going to see joggers and cyclists. It's a really nice way to see a neighborhood. And it is interesting. It's got an interesting statue of President Lincoln.
1: Yeah. Can you describe what this – statue. I would call it a, quote unquote, interesting statue. So can you describe it for folks who are listening?
0: Sure. It's often referred to as the Emancipation Monument. It is President Abraham Lincoln as the great emancipator, right, as the man who helped to end slavery in the United States. The way it's presented definitely is a bit of, I think, a white savior vibe. He looks very regal, very strong, and then sort of crouched down at his feet as an African-American freed from bondage. It is not the most enlightened, I think, depiction of emancipation and certainly the fight to end slavery in the United States. But it is an interesting statue. It was also done well before the Lincoln Memorial. And Frederick Douglass, the great abolitionist, a former slave himself, uh, spoke at the dedication of that statue. And if you go and read the speech, it's really interesting because he praises Lincoln while also in that speech recognizing that Lincoln, if you look at the statue, he emancipation was not the work of one man. And Douglas is not afraid to say that, which I think is great. Lincoln's widow, Mary Todd Lincoln, was so impressed with what Douglas said that day and how he spoke that she actually sent him one of President Lincoln's walking sticks as a gift. And Frederick Douglass kept that for the rest of his life.
1: Frederick Douglass, he's come up in the podcast before because you can visit his historic home in Washington, D.C.
0: And if you want to see the walking stick, they keep it currently at the Visitor Center at the Frederick Douglass House. So there's a nice little Lincoln spot there. But I would encourage people, if you're interested in Lincoln, Frederick Douglass has kind of a natural connection to that. He and Lincoln had a very interesting relationship.
1: Yeah. So come to Lincoln Park, see the statue, enjoy the neighborhood. It's, like you said, about a mile walk from the Capitol. You can see historic Victorian row houses, the very quintessential Capitol Hill, you know, beautiful properties over there. And so, you know, it doesn't take a long time to see it. But
0: it puts you a short walk to Eastern Market if you want to check out the market or check out some of the restaurants there. That's one of my favorite dining neighborhoods. So you can definitely get a little bit of Civil War era vibe if you head over that way as well.
1: So on the other side of town, we have a cemetery. It's called Oak Hill Cemetery, and this is in Georgetown. So a lot of visitors go to Georgetown. You have a tour of Georgetown. And so I think you said that you have started stopping here a little bit more frequently. So what can you tell us about Oak Hill Cemetery and what does it have to do with Abraham Lincoln?
0: Oak Hill Cemetery is kind of on the northern end of Georgetown, but it's kind of like a country club for the afterlife. Some of the most notable names in Washington, D.C. history, certainly in our government's history, are buried at Oak Hill Cemetery. It was started previous to the Civil War but starts to become very popular in the 1860s. The reason it relates to President Abraham Lincoln is that Lincoln's son, Willie, is going to pass away while Lincoln is in the White House. 1862, Willie is 11 years old. He falls ill. He dies in his White House bedroom. There's sort of this tragic element to losing a child at all. But Lincoln is commander in chief. The civil war is going on and he's obligated to host these parties and events. So even as his son lays dying, he has to be downstairs entertaining. So it's a very tough time for President Lincoln. They want to keep Willie close to home. So a man named Carroll, who was the clerk of the Supreme Court, had a crypt. He had lost some children. And so he said, why don't you put Willie in my crypt at Oak Hill? So there is a funeral procession. They inter Willie Lincoln at this crypt, and then President Lincoln is so distraught by the loss of his son, he goes back to Oak Hill several times, often alone, sometimes in the middle of the night. He would go. He'd get the key from the superintendent. He'd walk down, and it's a harrowing walk down. It's right along Rock Creek Park, so it's very isolated, very quiet, and he would just go and sit with his son, talk to his son, and it's sort of this, to me, just tragic, beautiful Kind of comparison to the man who's trying to bring the nation together, reunite us, do all this great work, who's also dealing with such a terrible, tragic loss.
1: Yeah, I can't even imagine the president not being able to sleep, leaving the White House in the middle of the night, going, you know, back then what would have been a fairly long distance to the cemetery and just spending hours there in the middle of the night, just absolutely harrowing, like you said.
0: Oak Hill, I think, has been kind of a local's favorite for a long time because it is in the heart of the Georgetown neighborhood, but it's gotten more popular in the last year or two.
1: Because of a book, right? A
0: book, yeah. So some of you readers may have heard of Lincoln and the Bardo by George Saunders. It is inspired by these Lincoln visits. The book is fictional, but it's a great read. It's set in a very real place. But they took this inspiration of this tragic kind of Lincoln situation of visiting his his dead son and used it to kind of write the book so Oak Hill is a wonderful place to visit we do have some tours that include Oak Hill and certainly you can visit Oak Hill on your own but a lot of other really interesting people like Bradley from The Washington Post Catherine Graham who was the owner of the post former secretaries of State David Bruce David Atchison so there's some cool people there
1: people might recognize those names if they saw the movie the post yeah, uh, absolutely. which recently <laughs> came out I did not know that those folks were buried there, but now I do. So thank you for enlightening me. There's another statue of Abraham Lincoln at Judiciary Square. This is a part of town where – that I don't think about very often because this is where I go every two years to do my jury duty. That's where (laughs) we have our courthouse. But there's also things that a visitor would want to see. The building museum is over there. The brand new law enforcement museum is over there and the law enforcement memorial is right at the metro station over there. But the Lincoln connection is – That there's
0: a statue. Yes. In fact, it was one of the first statues of Abraham Lincoln to be done after his death. He's assassinated 1865. They dedicate this on the third anniversary in 1868. So one of the first memorial statues of him anywhere in the United States. It is an odd part of town for visitors. It's not one we think of. But I think you're right. The Law Enforcement Museum, the National Building Museum, which was built after the Civil War as the pension office for Civil War soldiers. Edwin Stanton played a big role in the creation of the National Building Museum. So I'm a big fan of that. But it's a really interesting statue. I have to read this quote that the artist said about doing the Lincoln statue at Judiciary Square because it used to be up on a big, tall column. And he said, I lived through the days and nights of gloom following the assassination. As to everyone else, it was a personal lamentation. And when it fell to me to carve and erect the statue, I resolved and did place it so high that no assassin's hand could ever strike him down again.
1: Impressive. So where exactly should folks look for it when they're visiting? Because this is not one that is going to be very obvious signs pointing you in the direction. This is more of a hidden gem, I suppose, in the sense that you got to know where to look to find it.
0: You have to dig in a little bit. That is going to be on Indiana Avenue Northwest, right outside of the D.C. Court of Appeals. So if you Google the District of Columbia Court of Appeals building, that'll help you locate it. His statue is not on a big, tall column today. It's sort of on a regular kind of just base, but it's definitely worth a walk by. It's great for a photo op. It's interesting. A lot of the money was just raised by everyday Washingtonians who wanted to just see some sort of memorial to Lincoln. But the largest donation came from John Ford, the man who owned Ford's theater. And John Ford throughout his life felt a great deal of guilt because of the association with his theater, even though he had nothing to do with John Wilkes Booth and what he did.
1: I imagine. And for what it's worth, this is really not that far from most of the sites. If you're at the National Archives on 7th Street, Indiana Avenue is right there and you just walk a few blocks up the street and you're there. So it's not like even though we say it's not the most frequently visited part of town, it's not like it's way off the beaten path or anything like that either. So when you go to the Lincoln Memorial, you look at the Statue of Lincoln, you see his second inaugural speech. My
0: favorite speech he ever gives.
1: (laughs) It's a good one. I highly recommend uh, Googling it or maybe I'll put a link in the show notes. And then on the left, we have the Gettysburg Address, which is famous for many reasons, partially because it's very short and because kids memorize it when they're in school or at least they used to. And Lincoln gave that speech in Gettysburg in Pennsylvania. And that's actually a pretty short day trip from Washington, D.C. So if you're here for more than a weekend and you want to do something that's a little bit outside the city, you have a rental car or something like that, you can go up to Gettysburg. So what happens when you drive up there and you arrive at the park?
0: I would say that if you're Basing your tourists or traveling around Lincoln and you're coming to DC, you can't skip Gettysburg. It's very much a worthwhile addition. It's about a two hour drive. There's also a few bus routes that'll get you out there as well. You can take the train, but I definitely recommend driving because you'll want to make your way through the battlefield. So Gettysburg battlefield is a national park site. They have an amazing visitor center. They just redid a few years ago, gives a very in depth look at the war, but the battle itself. There's the famous cyclorama where you sort of enter this room. It's a three 360-degree experience that helps to bring the battle to life. And then you can either hire a Gettysburg guide, which I definitely recommend, or you can do a self-driving tour through the battlefield. And then throughout the battlefield, there's a number of memorials, statues, monuments to honor all, all of those who fought and died at Gettysburg.
1: And when you hire a guide, they get into your car with you and you drive around and they give you the commentary from the back seat. Is that how that works?
0: Absolutely. You can either hire a guide to get into your vehicle. There's also quite a number of tour companies that will arrange small bus tours. But to be a Gettysburg guide is a very, very competitive. It's a great deal of training. These are some of the greatest experts on the battle, on the Civil War, on Lincoln. So uh, if you're an enthusiast, I would definitely recommend considering that. But even if you're not, if you're a more casual interest, I'm not a military history expert. So I kind of enjoy just driving around on my own. But just the statues and the memorials, they're a reminder of what this war was for so many people. It's the bloodiest war in American history.
1: And this is an episode about Lincoln. But of course, the Civil War was a big part of his presidency. And we have Gettysburg. We have the Antietam battlefield in Maryland. If you go to Richmond, which is not too far away, there's a plethora of hit bull Civil runs War. only
0: about forty-five minutes or an hour out as well. The first battle of Bull Run is really the beginning of the Civil War, and everyday people in D.C. got into their carriages and rode out to Bull Run, thinking that it was all going to be over in one one go, and it definitely wasn't.
1: Unfortunately, unlike many of these conflicts, it's a lot more difficult than initially anticipated. But Civil War history is in a lot of places nearby. But that perhaps is an entirely different podcast <laughs> episode, so we might have to save those for another time. There's a lot of what I called Miscellaneous History, Lincoln History in Washington, D.C. I want to make sure that we mention these because after folks go to all the big historic sites, they might want to check out some of the interesting or lesser known places where you can see stuff for Lincoln. And one is at the American History Museum, one of my personal favorite museums in D.C. So what is there that is connected to Lincoln?
0: The number one Lincoln artifact, if you're just going to go find one object in a museum, it's the hat he was wearing that night at Ford's Theater. It's typically displayed in the American President exhibit up on the third floor. The Smithsonian has had this hat in their collection. For almost its entirety, it's a very special piece of their collection. Seeing that hat, it's like being there with him. It's really amazing. Now, is it's,
1: that a top hat, like his famous Right. Hats? It's sort of
0: the famous kind of top hat, although it isn't the, as tall the stovepipe as people sort of imagine. He was often, when people were doing political cartoons and caricatures of him, they would exaggerate the height of the hat. But it is a top hat. It's been very well preserved. It's currently displayed blade, also with a small flag that was placed on his funeral train. So it's a really nice display that they have right now on Lincoln's assassination.
1: Interesting. So what else is there?
0: So I really love if you go to the First Lady Dresses exhibit, which is a highlight of the American History Museum, there is a dress of Mary Todd Lincoln's, a beautiful purple velvet dress that actually had one skirt and two bodices. So you had to be very practical back then. You couldn't have a new outfit every single day. So you'd swap the bodices out. What's interesting is we believe this was done by Elizabeth Keckley, an African-American dress maker. She was actually hired by Mary Todd Lincoln right after Lincoln's first inauguration. She would become the First Lady's personal dresser. And they were very, very close, quite intimate. Mary Todd Lincoln shared a lot with Elizabeth Keckley and Keckley remained very close to the First Lady even after Lincoln's assassination. So to have this dress that we're pretty sure was made by her, she made almost everything Mary wore when she was First Lady.
1: And it's not just Mary Todd Lincoln's dress. It's all the First Lady's dresses from... All the way throughout history.
0: Yes. Not every single first lady has a dress on display because of size restriction. But if you go, you'll see first lady dresses going all the way from the 1800s up to the present day.
1: Yeah. Very popular spot to go. Another museum, the Portrait Gallery, they have portraits of famous people. And, of course, our presidents are awfully famous people. So the one that they have for Lincoln, what what does that portrait look like?
0: So there's actually a portrait, a painting of Lincoln, but there's also a photograph, which is quite famous. It's known as the broken plate photograph back then when you were making these photos before digital, right? You had to actually kind of process the plate. And when they were processing and pulling a print from the plate, the plate cracked because it was a cracked plate. They thought it was no good and destroyed it. So this is the only known print ever pulled from that plate. It's sort of a little foreboding, right? One of the last photographs taken of him before his assassination. And then there's this crack kind of coming down into his face. So it's one of my favorite uh, photographs of him. But it's certainly worth it just to see all the portraits of all the presidents. What's interesting about the building, too, is Lincoln's second inauguration was held in that building. And it's got great Civil War history as well.
1: So why was it held there and not at the Capitol? (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, during wartime, right, things are a little bit uh, complicated. But he is he is he is sworn in at the Capitol for a second inauguration. But his inaugural ball is held at what was the Patent Office at the time, but had been a Civil War hospital, had been used a lot during the Civil War, and so they decided to have the inaugural ball there because it was a space big enough to accommodate that event. So even during the war, they were still having balls.
1: One of many examples of how Washington was a little bit different back in the 1800s than it is (laughs) today. When you go around to the back of the Lincoln Memorial, you can see across Arlington Memorial Bridge... Arlington Cemetery. And this has some connections to Lincoln. You know, firstly, it was once Robert E. Lee's home and he lived there with his wife. And then after he fled to Richmond during the Civil War, it was taken over by the Union and eventually became Arlington Cemetery. But there's another Lincoln connection that I think you know about.
0: Yes. So it may surprise people to learn this, but President Lincoln's eldest son, Robert Todd Lincoln, is buried at Arlington National Cemetery. The Lincolns had four sons. Only Robert Todd Lincoln lives past the age of 18. So he's sort of the only one to carry on his father's legacy. He has a long career, a long life in public service. He very much feels an obligation to carry on his father's legacy. But ultimately, he, his wife, also named Mary, just like his mother, really pushes him to be buried at Arlington, kind of on his own merits. He had served in the Civil War. He was Captain Robert Todd Lincoln. He was actually Secretary of War when the cemetery was officially transferred and there was a bill of sale in the 1880s. So he has a long connection to the cemetery. So uh, I think kind of instead of being in his father's shadow and death, he's buried at Arlington, whereas, of course, the Lincolns are buried in Springfield, Illinois.
1: And another interesting fact about Robert Todd Lincoln is that he attended the ceremony for the Lincoln Memorial when it opened in 1922.
0: It was actually Robert Todd Lincoln's last public event. He was in his 80s by that point in the 1922.
1: It took a while to build the Lincoln
0: Memorial after Lincoln yeah. passed. <laughs> and of course, you know, he he was 21 years old at the time of his father's death. So he wasn't a young, young, he was young. He wasn't a child. But he does attend the dedication of the Lincoln Memorial. He really has to. He really understands the importance of representing his father. There were a number of Civil War veterans that attended that dedication. So it was important to him to be there. But that was his last public event. He kind of fell out of the public eye, had some poor health and passed away the following year.
1: So it was great that he got to attend even if he didn't get to experience it much after that. Another historic site where Lincoln spent a little time was the Willard Hotel. I feel like the Willard has come up in every other podcast episode because so much history in Washington, D.C. has happened there.
0: Yeah, I would just say, of course, uh, if you were to visit the Willard today, which I highly recommend, it's one of my favorite spots in the city. I love the Round Robin Bar. That's kind of my little oasis downtown if I want to go somewhere quiet and relax. But it is very different today than it was when Lincoln was president. So it's important for people to know that it's almost essentially – an entirely different spot but Lincoln stays at the Willard Hotel the night before his first inauguration there's a great story about Lincoln needing slippers and of course he was a tall guy he was 6'4 tallest person to ever be president and he had big feet and so he needed slippers the manager at the time didn't have any slippers in his size and the story goes that he had a mother-in-law who was quite a large lady had some big feet and that he borrowed his mother-in-law's slippers for president Lincoln
1: wow and it's worth noting that back then, there weren't a lot of hotels in Washington, D.C. No. Nowadays, you come, you go on one of those website hotel websites, and you feel like there's an overwhelming number of choices. This was not always the case. We have not had a big tourism industry, business and convention industry until recent history. So a lot of famous stuff happened at the Willard because, for better words, that was one of the few places where you could stay.
0: And certainly one of the largest hotels at the time.
1: Right. So – Next door to the Willard is the White House, and this is the most obvious. No duh. Of course, this is connected to Lincoln because he lived there during his presidency. But I imagine that the White House looked a little bit different when Lincoln was living there than it does when people visit today.
0: Yes. Yeah, so if you want to get the best view of what it looked like when Lincoln lived there, you're going to want to be on the north front side. That's where Lafayette Square Park is. That's where Pennsylvania Avenue is. The north front side looks the closest to what it looked like in the 1860s. Of course, you'd have to imagine no fence, no Secret Service, no snipers on the roof. If you. visit between now and about 2021, you're going to see a lot of construction happening because they're redoing the White House fence. But the north side is going to give you the best view of what Lincoln would have seen. And that was the carriage entrance. So when you think about Lincoln coming and going from the cottage or coming and going from Ford's Theater or various places, he would have been coming in and out of that door on the north side.
1: And that's different from the modern president who travels by helicopter. Nine times
0: out of 10. (laughs) uh,
1: Takes off and lands on the south side of the White House. So it's almost the complete opposite of how it was back then. I always describe the White House as being three different buildings in history. You had the one that John Adams first lived in that got burned down a few years later by the British. Then you had the one that Lincoln lived in, and then that one got gutted during the 1940s when Truman was president. Mm -hmm. And so it's had a few iterations throughout history, and the one that Lincoln lived in is not really the same as the one that you see now from the outside or you go and see on the inside if you go inside.
0: It's important to remember that there wasn't a West Wing at this point. There wasn't an Oval Office. So when you think about the building, we're thinking about that executive mansion structure and that Lincoln really was living and working all in the same space. And this was when there was an open door policy. So people were traipsing through All the time. Poor Mary Todd Lincoln. You know, she's first lady. It's the Civil War. There's a crackdown on government spending, but the house is falling down around them. And she's trying desperately to sort of just at least keep it presentable because they're obligated to host all these people, you know, day in and day out.
1: So there's a room called the Lincoln Bedroom. And it seems logical that that was Lincoln's bedroom, right?
0: (laughs) He never slept in the Lincoln Bedroom. I don't want to blow your mind, but never actually slept there at all.
1: So how did it get its name?
0: It gets its name because it was where Lincoln had his office. He had his office and a sitting room area. Again, he was living and working in really what was a two-story building, the third floor being mostly attic. So the first floor was where all the guests were coming in. If he wanted any sort of quiet-ish space for working, he worked up on the second floor. So the room that we call the Lincoln Bedroom today is really his office. It's where he would have done his writing, his correspondence. He would have met people like Frederick Douglass when they came to visit.
1: Right. So like you said, West Wing didn't come until later. It was really pretty close quarters back then. The president had to live there, work there and entertain there. So a lot of stuff was going on in that building.
0: And imagine, you know, when you have two kids, you've got your sons riding their goats around inside the White House. That was one of Tad Lincoln's favorite activities. So it was a little chaotic.
1: Yeah. Nowadays, the presidential pet is a dog or a cat, but that has not always been the case throughout history. <laughs> so you mentioned a book earlier about Lincoln. What other resources would you recommend for people who just finished the podcast and they're thinking, I got know everything about this guy. What other books, movies, TV shows do you like?
0: I definitely am a fan of the Spielberg Lincoln with Daniel Day-Lewis. I think it does a very good job of conveying a good portrait of Lincoln during the Civil War. We do tend to focus, I think, on the side of Lincoln that's a little more humorous, right? The man who could tell a joke and be funny and we think honest Abe, good honest Abe. But he was very smart. He was a good politician. He knew how to play other people's vanities and egos and he could get stuff done and he wasn't above manipulating to do that. So I think the Lincoln movie gives us a really good look into how hard Lincoln works to try to reunite the country, try to end slavery, try to move the nation forward. So that does a really good job. I'm also a huge fan of the book Manhunt by James Swanson. I think it's the best book on Lincoln's assassination. And there's a great companion book of follow-up that looks at Lincoln's funeral procession and how we remembered Lincoln in mourning. And I think it really gets to how much Lincoln meant to the American people in life and in death.
1: Those are great resources. I'm going to put those all in the show notes. And Rebecca, I want to really thank you for coming back to the TripHacks DC podcast. I love being here. If people want to follow along with you, where can they find you and how can they do that?
0: Yeah, of course. So um you can always check us out at DC by Foot, dcbyfoot.com. You can also just follow us on Free Tours by Foot. We're on Twitter and Instagram. We share travel tips, not just for D.C., but for cities all around the United States and in Europe. You can also follow our Instagram, Top Things to Do D.C., where we try to share a little bit more of a local's view of D.C., some of our favorite restaurants, some of our favorite neighborhoods and local sites. So, yeah, I think that's
1: it. <laughs> and come and enjoy Lincoln while you're here.
0: Yeah, please do.
1: Thanks for listening to The Trip TripHacks DC Podcast. To see the show notes from today's episode, get additional resources for planning your trip, or to book a TripHacks DC guided tour, visit TripHacksDC.com.